Hey everybody, this is John. And this is Vince. And you're listening to Legends of Tabletop. Creating legends one die at a time. Hey everybody, this is another one of the panels that we recorded at Necronomicon. It's called Writing Non-Stale Mythos Tales. I'll give you a blurb from the program guide. How can today's writers escape this normalization of a creature whose very existence is supposed to be mind-shattering? Is it even possible to write a new mythos story that would have the same impact today that Call of Cthulhu had back in 1926 without reverting to simple pastiche? Our panelists think so and have done it. Find out why the Cthulhu mythos is just as frightening today as it ever was. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon here. We're in the grand ballroom. We get the big room. We get the big table. We have the big questions. Yeah. Each more daunting than the last. So here we are. We're at the uh, Writing Non-Steel Mythos Tales panel, and we've got a wonderful panel here. And I'm going to introduce myself first, and then I'm going to have them introduce themselves. And uh, I'm Vincent O'Neill, and I live around here, and about 20 years ago, I actually started working in the Daily Planet building there, the Inter- Industrial Trust building that Lovecraft references in, uh, in uh, The Haunter of the Dark. And I write just a little bit of everything. I've written murder mystery. Most recently, I was very fortunate. I completed a military science fiction series with Harper Collins, so I'm very proud of that. And then also, because I love horror, and the thing that got me into writing was Stephen King's book, The Shining. I really wanted to try it. I had become a big fan of Lovecraft, so I said, I want to set something right here in Providence, and I did. And it's my book, uh, Interlands, and I'm very happy about how this turned out. Interlands is a free download in Kindle and ebook for the rest of the convention, so if you'd like to get a copy of that, it's called Interlands. And apart from that, I'm going to be your moderator today. And now we're just going to go right down the line and we'll have our wonderful panelists introduce themselves. I guess I'm number two. Um, I'm Kish Johnson. Uh, I I was thrilled to be invited here because uh, while I started out as a horror writer, I spent a lot of time not writing horror and coming back to it just in the last couple of years. The most recent book was um, The Dream Quest of Bella Duo. Um, which came out last year and was nominated for all the awards this year and thus far has been stumped. Um, <laughs> but I've already won them, so I can't whine too much. Um, and uh, um, and yeah, I, I guess I'll stop with that. Oh, oh I have a question. Um, the Hugo, the Nebula, three times the World Fantasy, the Sturgeon, um, and. I work in academia, and I'm surrounded by people who are like, you won something, and I'm like, yeah, it's the Hugo, and they're like, and what is that exactly? And I'm like, how does anybody not know what that is? But, uh, um, and I guess the other thing is that I have another book coming out next month, which is sort of me, I did the same thing with uh, The Wind in the Willows that I did with, um, with uh, Lovecraft, but I just went back and sort of readdressed it and wrote a, a book called The Riverbank, which will be out next month, and was supposed to be out in May. <laughs> And next month, but never mind. September. <laughs> what is, that? is that next month? Yes. yes. September. 
I'm dead. I'm dead. Time travel. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm Pete Rollick, so that you don't have to be. Um, <laughs> most of you know me from the Lovecraft Easy. You might know me from my novels. What are they? Reanimators, Weird Company, Reanimatrix, the Peasley Papers. Peasley Papers just came out. Like, you get 20 copies. We're down to like four. So, yes. Um, you all know pretty much the story about why I write Lovecraftian horror, so we won't go into that. Um, yeah, that's me. Don't, oh, I've been nominated for the a new Pulp Award, and Reanimatrix was named by Booklist Online as one of the top ten horror novels of the year. Okay. So, I got that Yeah. And on, the, and on the same day I found out about that, I got my ARP membership. And lose. <laughs> uh, I'm Tom Lynch. Um, you may remember me from Miskatonic Over Press. Um, and Don't you owe me money? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> and I um, currently am devoting as much time as I can to writing as opposed to publishing because it's really hard, if not impossible, to do both. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been in a number of anthologies and I'm currently putting together a collection, so we'll see how that goes. Okay, I am Alex Houston. I am the token non-fiction writer on the fiction panel. Uh, <laughs> I have written critically about Lovecraft for a couple of years. I edit Dead Reckonings, which is a journal devoted to the weird and horror, and however we used to find those terms um, for Hippocampus Press. Boy, that, that's it. I got no awards, no AARP membership. <laughs> The yeah, you get this big package in the mail, and it's like in this big brown envelope, and you're like, oh, cool, what is this? Like is this porn? a book? Yeah, like porn. Oh. Like, you know, <laughs> for, those of you, for those of you who are a little younger, you couldn't used to get porn on the internet. You didn't have the, you know, so brown porn used to come in brown envelopes. You know? And you're like, yeah, yes. And then, you, so you open it up, and like, you're really excited, and you open it up, and it's like, welcome to AARP. You're now, Officially old. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So just a couple of administrative announcements here. Uh, if you haven't done this already, please silence your cell phones. Uh, with about 15 minutes to left and 15 minutes of time left here, we'll go ahead and start taking questions from the crowd, unless I run out of things to say, in which case. Oh, well, I never run out of things to say, so. <laughs> and uh, finally, for the panelists, just, uh, please speak right into the microphones, and if you can't hear, go ahead and wave at me, and we'll go ahead and fix that for you. As I said earlier, we're uh, writing nuns. We're on, this is the Writing Non-Scale Mythos Tales panel. Cthulhu has been turned into plush toys, bobbleheads, slippers, and even action figures. How can today's writers escape this normalization of a creature whose very existence is supposed to be mind-shattering? Is it even possible to write a new mythos story that would have the same impact on readers today that Call of Cthulhu had back in 1926 without reverting to simple imitation? Well, our panelists think so, and they have done it. 
So now we're going to talk about why the Cthulhu myth mythos is just as frightening today as it ever was. So going right from the panel description, how do each of you go about writing non-stale mythos tales? Not it. <laughs> go ahead, Tom. Okay. I'm just um, besides, if I go first, then you can't take my stuff. Um, honestly, what I do these days is I get I get plenty of inspiration for true, the truly horrific um, in my CNN news feed. I don't know about you guys, um, but there's a lot of the liveliest awfulness coming in that way. Um, but in addition to that, while it would be Back it up two seconds. Pastiche doesn't mean bad. Pastiche just means a copy. Not even a copy, a, a new way of doing something, or a, a, your flavor of it. So that it's, it's not bad necessarily. It's come to mean negative. There's a negative connotation to it. But what any writer today can do is take a look at what's been done and think a different angle. Think of someone else's perspective. What was called Cthulhu like from Cthulhu's perspective? The boat's perspective, the island's perspective, one of the natives of the island, who knows? Um, so any one of these is something that could be addressed. A, a lot of things that have been happening in the last couple of years that I've seen is a number of fairy tales and um, other kind of something that would be a, a children's story retold. You know, this guy named Blair Baron who didn't show up. Anyway, uh, wrote a book called The Croning, and that takes Rumpelstiltskin, and oh, you never seen Rumpelstiltskin quite like that. Um, but it's Rumpelstiltskin. Uh, and Victor Laval just released The Changeling. Again, you know, you know the origin of the changing is really scary. This book is really scary. Um, but why not take a look at what's been done and, and reinterpret it for today's audience? Because let's face it, we're today's audience. And we would like to hear that. Uh, and, and I'll shut up right after I say one more thing on this. And one thing that I just heard is it doesn't even have to be an original idea. It just has to be good. So if you have an idea, even if it's been done before, if you do it well, and you're, it may well be worthy and it'll fit and it'll get published, it'll be out there. And that's why we do this. What Tom said about pastiche, Tom, right? Yes. Not Tom. Um, uh, pastiche is actually a technical term with massive emotional baggage attached at this point. But pastiche means that essentially you're writing in the style of, in the flavor of, like Holmes, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle doing Sherlock Holmes or something. But it's, uh, I think that talking about non-stale mythos stories, it is really uh, smart to start talking just generally about non-stale anything stories. Because um, that tradition of uh, fairy tales actually has been around since the Terry Windling um, fantasy. Uh, she did fairy tale retellings in the, she was an editor um, and still is, in, uh, uh, in, for Ace, was it? 
Does anybody remember that? Yes. Yes, eight. And she had uh, new fantasy writers retelling stories. So Thomas the Rhymer, uh, The Nightingale, things like that. And, and even that was drawing from previous stuff from Evangeline Walton, retelling the Mabinogian, things like that. So, uh, so we were already used to going back to the source materials of fantasy. Um, and we were used to sort of coming, readdressing them, rethinking them. What's, I think, specific to Lovecraft, and I think we could talk about that for hours, but I think what's specific to Lovecraft is that he invented it himself. I mean, that shit is his. And, um, and yet we still respond to it as if it is, uh, you know, comparable to responding to Snow White. Um, and I find that particularly interesting, that that and Conan Doyle are maybe the two best examples where somebody created something that immediately, while being distinctly their own, is also uh, was embraced immediately into the how do, we, how do we play in that playground as well? How do I do this as well? I don't have any great realizations about that. I just thought I'd add that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to echo what Tom said about change of perspective. Um, or in looking at what's been done and then looking at that, that standard and say, okay, I want to turn this on its head and tell it from somebody else's point of view or make one tiny change to the story that changes everything we know. So in The Weird Company, one of the greatest things I did was I actually talked about what happened between Ephraim and Asneth. Um, no, we hadn't done that before. Nobody, you know, it's this great story. It should be a horrific, great tale. But I, I looked. I can't, for 70 years, nobody tackled that issue. I, and it's interesting because there's a third character there, Ephraim's wife, who nobody talks about. It's completely ignored. I like to think I did a good job there. Um, one of my early stories, uh, Here Be Monsters, is the quest for Cthulhu. And to release Cthulhu, we, you know, everyone does this. Oh, there's this cultist. They're going to summon Cthulhu and release him, and they always fail. Always. I wanted to answer the question: Why do they always fail? So I have a deep one. Go down to rely. He gets there. And he opens up the coffin, and it's empty. He's gone. And he woke up. He looked around. He said, "I've been here for millennia. You guys mean nothing to me." And walked away. It's a complete deeply bored. He was deeply bored. Yeah. Well, yes. But, you know, so we think of you know the the, the the line we've been sold is that Cthulhu will wake up and destroy the world because we are nothing to him. Well, sometimes you wake up and you just walk away. Mm -hmm. And if we're nothing, then why bother? And that you know is a relief to us. But for a deep one whose whole life and whose whole gnosis and religion is built around the idea that Cthulhu is going to wake up and destroy the world, mm -hmm. that's shattering. Yeah. Well, and what could be more interesting than the story about what happens after that? Right. I mean, uh, what do you do when you realize? I mean, this is, I mean, that one of the ways that I, I think of when, when I think about rebuilding uh, an existing structure. One thing I think is who is ignored? Every story, decisions are made about what they're going to talk about. Nobody ever writes about the, uh, the sewage disposal 
scientists on, on spaceships or anything else. But um, so one thing is you look at what what the what the assumptions, cultural assumptions of this story are, either from the author or from the world itself. But another one is that you take something. Um, and you move it past the moment that uh, that the big dramatic reveal. What happens next? I mean, the politics. As some people want to reveal this, and some people want to conceal it, and the infrastructure is still there. Um, and so, how do you? What happens then? Now, that's not a horror story, or it is, but it's not a supernatural horror story. But that would be a really interesting take, I would think. One of the things I, I work on constantly: this idea of moving from faith yeah. to Gnosis, to, to knowing. And a lot of Lovecraft's characters do this. They don't, at the beginning of the story, they don't know anything. But by the end of the story, they don't just have faith, they have knowledge. They know the universe is not the way it's been sold to us. Mm -hmm. That is not only devastating, it could be terribly frightening. And I think uh, C.J. Henderson dealt with this in a story where there's a priest of Azatoth who just you know, commits mass murder day after day after day because he knows that it means nothing. The universe is a lie. Um, that is, is terrifying, you know, done in the right hands, whether it be Joe Pulver or C.J. Henderson or whoever. Yeah, I think Kevin Ross, who had been uh, Dead but Dreaming and Dead but Dreaming 2, if you can still get copies. Um, I saw copies in the book. Did you really? Yeah, cool. Um, the... Um, called that particular moment the dark epiphany. Mm -hmm. so, so there you are, and life is happy as you know it, and the sun's going to come up, and it's going to go down, and there'll be birds and butterflies and everything, and then you realize, because <laughs> um, it's not what you think at all. And it is meaningless, and it's horrible, and the great old ones are real. Uh, he called that the dark epiphany, that, that sudden realization, that the move, movement of Nassos is exactly that and that's that's been done a few times but when it's done well there are always fantastic stories well it's a wonderful mirror of what what it is to be human because sooner or later we all I this is a news flash to some of you perhaps that we're all gonna die um, <laughs> I pass yeah yeah no, but but yeah I mean it's like uh, that it stands as a metaphor as well as a fact within the story and then so it has huge resonance even if it has been done a million times everybody has to fight that themselves and so everybody it, it has it has universal appeal I guess or anti-appeal Uh, it was originally in the description of our panel, but I replaced it with the word imitation because that's the third rail of panel moderation. <laughs> you use the word pastiche and it just, it goes, it kicks off, it happens. And it almost did here, but they restrained themselves, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good like playing with fire. <laughs> or electricity, since you said the third rail. And another thing that happens in panel moderation is you write up ten really cool questions and the answer of the first five in answering the first question. Yeah. So now we are on question number seven. <laughs> if you were a tree, what good. tree would you be? Given that the members of the Lovecraft Circle themselves played around with the specifics of the mythos, and that Lovecraft himself borrowed from authors that he read, 
is it sensible to say that expansions on the mythos have been acceptable from its earliest days? Yes. And no. And do not answer the yes or no question. Oh. Yes, yes. So, it's like stand up. What do you mean by acceptable necessarily? Like, it, it, I mean, it makes sense and it's totally like everyone's in on it. But, I mean, some of those original architects wrote some trash. Like, I'm sorry, I don't know how else to put it. Like, uh, like, some of it's like, yeah, it's acceptable. By all means, power to you. This is how, this is how the world is built. This is how you create a mythos or a legend or whatever. This is how these things are established and you kind of uh, set the parameters. But, like, I'm sorry, I, uh, I was going to start naming names. Like, no, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Henry Cutner is awful. I think Frank Belknap is long. It's like, yeah. what, it's like a third of this stuff is okay? <laughs> I'm just like waiting to try my life for Sean now, too. But, like, so, I mean, it's like they play important roles, but like, it's just like, it's neat. But it, it, I mean, for all this, it's almost like this kind of funny thing. There is so much anxiety in 2017. And I think actually since the, this conference, this has been going since uh, it started, there's always been these panels kind of about like, well, how do we do this in a way that doesn't like upset a prior generation or doesn't like mistreat Lovecraft's legacy? And the fact of the matter is like, people have been doing it long since the get-go. Uh, long maybe is again, uh, these are, this is, yeah, we all have our own different tastes, we all probably feel like <laughs> we get different things out of these stories, but like, acceptable, yes, but that, it's almost like an irrelevant term. So um, I'm going to back him up a little bit because I spent the plane ride up here rereading the uh, paperback edition of The City of the Singing Flame by Clark Cashin Smith mm -hmm. and some stories in that as well. And look, the language is beautiful. There's some great scenery, great imagery, but some of the stories are weak. You know, the maze of Maldweb, you know, he's kidnapping women and he's paralyzing them forever. I mean, it's, it's not a great story. It's, we would probably not publish it, except the language and the descriptions are beautiful, but the plot is kind of small. Um, yeah, you can move that way now? <laughs> but, no. but, you know, but I say this, but we're saying this in retrospect because now we have this vast amount of literature that we now have where that is, that is trope, that is weak. But back then, maybe it wasn't. Maybe he was the first one to do it, and now we're just looking in retrospect and saying, yeah, it's mediocre. Well, I mean, I'm thinking about what you said about it's been done before, and I'm a huge Smith fan, but I like you anyway. <laughs> no, I, but, I, I, but yeah, as a storyteller, I mean, this is the thing. It's like not every story does everything equally well, and Lovecraft himself, some of his stories, the plots are thin. Yeah. Um, one doesn't read them for the plots, and sometimes the language is thin or thick. Um, and, but then we're not reading. But then we're not reading it necessarily for that. I mean, the fact is, is that it's an alchemy. All those pieces together create a work, and we put up with a lot of shit if we love one thing about a story. Um, yes. In exchange, so there's a lot of really, really terrible contemporary fiction that I can't read, um, t which is terribly written but brilliantly story told. And I think that all of these things, one of the as one of the ways everybody addressed all of this stuff is, um, you know, when we talk about making it not stale, try to write better than Lovecraft. I mean, try. I, it's because if you want to write something that is like Lovecraft but fresh, 
then, then try to do better, see what happens, you know, or try to tell a story that is different or deeper or try to, you know, any of these things. You can approach a story from so many different sort of things a story does well or poorly. Um, and any of the ones where it's poor, if you have clear eyes and you look at it and say, you know, the thing that this author just did not do that well, X, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to do that with this, with this world and see what happens. It's exactly what I did, is I always like, you know, actually, um, Ashton Smith is a gorgeous stylist. Yeah. Um, absolutely gorgeous. Um, Chamber, Robert Chambers, uh, Robert? Richard. Robert, Robert, Robert W. Chambers. Who I discovered only while I was working, this gorgeous stylist. And I said, I want to apply that style, that, that style to a Lovecraft story. Because of course he was doing something, but it was distinctively his. And, and that's absolutely right, the, the idea of trying to do better, because, I mean, just because you're not going to use the encyclopedic words that Lovecraft used, and, and maybe you don't have a, a new idea for this crazy tentacle being, you can. You can do better. Just give it a shot. You don't know until you put, you know, figure to pen to paper and give it a try and run it by some friends. I mean, Lovecraft had a circle. Um, these days, there are still circles. Uh, I like to think of you know, ourselves as part of various Lovecraftian circles. You know, I, dude, I just wrote this. Can you give me some feedback? And ever so often, you send it to someone, they go, yeah, um, I'll take it. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> it happens. Getting back to the original question, where, and not that I don't mind ever, you know, but um, there is a writer who wrote, I think, two mythos stories that I really enjoyed, uh, C. Hall Thompson. And then basically was shut down by Derelith. He, he was not part of Derelith's group, and he was told to stop. Um, Derelith wasn't qualified to say that, so, you know, but he did, because <laughs> he, he did. did. Yeah, yeah. Right. And nobody challenged him, so, yeah. But he wrote two good stories. He went on to write a lot of westerns and, like, uh, frontier fiction, and they're good. Um, it would have been nice to see what would have happened if he had been allowed to develop as a weird writer. <laughs> but he was cut short. There. It's the challenge, folks. Go out and find him, read him, and come back to Pete and ask him to edit an anthology of oh. what it would have sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> May I ask a question of the panel? Um, so this has been visitors recurring theme of as Pete just said, do do better than Lovecraft kind of move on Lovecraft. So my to ask you guys, can you do better than him with but move beyond the mythos? Can you I I, I the novella that you just came out of, the Dream Quest novella, so, I mean... Well done! Yes! He got it! He got it! Right it's, a, it's a really beautiful work, um, and I read it, I hadn't, it had been a long time since I had read the Dream Quest of Randall Carter, and I caught some of the references, but I felt like I could read it without... It was, it was, it, 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 in my mind, it was working. It worked totally fine without that prerequisite Lovecraftian knowledge, and the the themes and the commentary that you make on the dream world, uh, and sort of the uh, um, there's this recurring sort of criticism and commentary that dreamers are perceived to only be men, and it's, it's addressing. It, forgive me if I misinterpreted, but kind of like there's just kind of the uh, presumed sexism of Lovecraft's work, or your fiction in general. This is a masculine sort of genre. That this is where you know men play and men dream and all this. And but your your 
the, the, the novella, it, it, can, it doesn't, it didn't feel like it needed, it, it could be beyond Lovecraft. Anyone could read it and could understand it to a degree. And so I, I wonder, for all of you, when, how much in improving upon Lovecraft reads do you still feel a need to circle back to him, or can, it, can you make that break? Is it, is it okay, or does it, can it be a mythos story without having the mythos necessarily, or something along those lines? That's a super cool question, because um, the, question, the idea of how do you, if you're, if you're writing about giant tentacle monsters from outer space, um, it's like, is it a mythos story if you don't use any of the language? Right. If you don't, um, and uh, or is it just an homage, or is it not even that? Is it just you drawing from the materials that you have read and creating your own sort of alchemical reaction somewhere inside that has produced a story that has a giant tentacle monster? Um, and I realize that I love that I'm in a crowd where I know that that's a simplification of Cthulhu. Um, because every other crowd I've ever in, they're all like, oh yeah, that's totally cool. But, but um, so I love that. Uh, these are my people. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that is a question. How do you, how, how much do you engage explicitly with the materi materials? And in that case, I was, because I was purposefully making it about that. But I've done so much thinking in recent years about how we draw, derive our ideas. And they always come from somewhere. Um, they always, uh, there's always something that I am drawing from. Um, and often people won't recognize it because it's way out of our genre or it's way out of fiction even. But yeah, I mean, how do you do that? You just try. <laughs> so I'm gonna name drop some things that I think meet your criteria. Babylon 5 yeah. is a huge mythos story arc without dropping any mythos names. Um, China Meville's The Kraken is a mythos novel just to the side. Um, there's a, you know, Neil Gaiman does a few things here and there too. But one just, just one or two, yes. Um, but yeah, you can do, oh, um, I have a vast collection of Lovecraftian fiction, but I have things on that shelf that most Lovecraftians wouldn't have. Um, I have uh, Thomas Monteleone's Night Train, right. which is a Lovecraftian novel without yeah. any Lovecraft in it. Um, I'm going to reach here, but Whitley Stryber's The Wolfen. Yeah. If you don't think of them as werewolves, but you think of them as ghouls, a lot of it makes a lot more sense. Um, you know, something that we've lived with as a, a civilization, an urban civilization, for a long time. Uh, so I put that on my, my mythos shelf. Now, he's since written a mythos novel, um, so yeah, it, it fits well. But yeah, you can write a Lovecraftian novel, but not write a Lovecraftian novel. Uh, the best one I've ever seen is Greg Bear's Blood Music which deals with nanites that transform all of North America into one entity. And then that entity gets up and leaves and you know, has a major impact on the rest of the planet. But that's, the, that's a singularity event, but it's also a, the spawning of a mythos entity. Um, and they talk about that. People go insane because they see this thing. So, yeah. Um, one other that I'll make a, a popular culture reference to is so much anime, uh, yeah. Japanese animation. How, how many 
scary side, because they're not all necessarily scary, but, but how many tentacles appear and how much anime. Um, but but all they don't, them. right, all the time. And, you know, unfortunately, there's usually some girl who gets accosted on the go, guys, you need really. Wait, tell me more about this. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's right there you have it's it's Lovecraft but it's not because you have that idea but you've stepped outside of the mythos outside of that well is Akira a mythos uh, Akira is very Lovecraftian absolutely so, and, and it, it, it works as it is or is, is, that a, is that a question you have that you want? go for it it's just that Things. Yes. Right. Hiroshiga or at least two right. others. Yeah. Yeah. The observation was that the uh, tentacles in the it was a Japanese culture, Japanese folklore extends back quite a way. Yeah. Yes. So, but that, that doesn't mean that they didn't then like look right. at Lovecraft and say, oh yeah. Yeah. We have a tendency. It works. We have a tendency to to see what we want to see there. But, you know, oh, kaiju started with Godzilla. But if you actually look at the history of, of monsters in Japan, giant monsters were actually very, very common in Japanese culture way before Godzilla. So, you know. Monsters predate TV. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the sexualization of octopus tentacles, there's some great art. I wrote a story about oh. that, actually. <laughs> and one of the words for it. <laughs> and and that is the story that I wrote that people it's called Spar, it's online. And it will give you nightmares if you're a good person and if you're not, it will not give you nightmares. But uh, um, but but I, I remember doing a lot of reading before that and thinking a lot about and to my mind that is kind of a you know, the idea of absolute you know, evil that is, or not even evil, stuff that is so beyond the, our compass that we cannot even we cannot even assume good or evil or any other thing about it. We, we that is an application that we place upon its actions. Right, that's that's our which label, is very because, you know, very elder ones. Right, although just, they're evil too. Just gonna say because we we call it evil. They were just like, well, no, you just don't count. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just, we're doing our thing, and you might term that evil, but we have our own compass by which we got it, and you can't even fathom it because you're this puny little human critter, mm -hmm. and we've been around for strange eons. I just wrote a little list um, because I was thinking, because this is what I do is make lists, because I was thinking that going back to the sort of core question of this, you know, how do you write non stale mythos? And um, and I have I started a list of different ways that one does that, and uh, one of them is by applying a different voice, or by applying that voice to a different kind of fiction. So Lovecraftian romance would be a possibility. Hybrids are one that we haven't talked about yet. Hybrids. And I was yeah, because I got to thinking one of my favorite books from long ago was something called Screen for G's, which was a <laughs> P.G. Woodhouse um, yes. Lovecraft pastiche. And it wasn't, it was not perfect, I will say. I, after I read it, I said, I want to write that. Damn it, damn it. Um, but I do think that, you know, the, the stranger, the pastiche, and we see, you know, like Lovecraft Western pastiche or, or hybrids, as soon as you hybridize, you're forcing yourself to re-engage in a new way. And that's the main thing, is that whatever it is you do, and I had other things down here too, like uh, addressing, engaging directly with 
the hidden assumptions of the culture, which I said earlier. But basically, anything that forces you to engage in a very specific, outside of loving it way with something that you love is going to give you the possibility of creating art. So you don't just try to create another thing just like a sequel to, you know, or I mean, you can. I'm thinking of... I was just going to say, yeah, you can. You but, can. Right. And there's that. And, um, but if part of your goal is to say something about what a thing you love, um, the part of being able to say things about things you love or hate is to be able to answer why you love it and where it failed you. Um, or conversely, why you hated it, and where nevertheless they do something pretty spectacular. And that happens to me a lot. There's a lot of fiction out there that I just hate, that I will read, and I'll be like, okay, so why am I reading it anyway? I have an answer to that. Clive Tussler. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at yeah. you, Clive. So one of the things I do, you know, so my, my son is going off to college, he's studying digital, uh, emerging digital media, but for the last, 10 years, we've been doing a movie-cation, a movie education, and we watch a lot of shit. Yeah. Right? Because, and then we'll like, we'll watch like 10 bad movies, and then we'll watch one good one. And because it, it good movies are really hard sometimes to figure out what they did right. Right. But it's easy to look at a bad movie and say, oh, Jesus, you know, that, that's what you did wrong. So in, in this way, you can learn to tell what's good and what's bad and what works and what didn't, didn't work. And the same thing is with literature. I read, a, you know, I do reviews, I, read, I collect mythos, good or bad. There are some really bad mythos stories out there, but they're still on the shelf because I want to know what people did and why didn't it work. And it's important not only to understand what, why you like a certain story, but why you didn't like a certain story and why things failed miserably. And you, Vince, you talked about the, the question you were going to ask me. Yes. You know, it's like, can you, should you ever go full mythos? <laughs> <laughs> On more often than not, Lynn Carter went full mythos. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work. It pads. And for a lot of people who came in post-70s, that was their style. Mm -hmm. And he, the people imitated that. They did the dump, the, the 12 paragraphs of Lovecraftian names and books, and, oh, look, I've got this on the show. No. It's, it's, it doesn't work. It's just you're padding the story. So, yeah, that's those kinds of things. Oh, you know who did a fantastic mythos story that's not a mythos story is C.L. Moore um, when she wrote The Black God's Kiss. Yes. Um, and then the third one of the Jarell stories where she used, um, again, speaking of works that one loves that one nevertheless has to step outside of, she uses the words for gold and amber and honey and violet and purple. Like, I am not exaggerating, something like six times a page for the entire story. Um, and it just, and you don't notice because the story is so solid, but when you read it critically, you recognize that. And that made me think about Lovecraft's use of the same echoing adjectives again and again and again. It was really, I mean, that's what happens. If you want to write this stuff, this is what you end up doing, is rereading things until you've worn the tread off until you stop seeing the meaning of the story and you start seeing the next layer of meaning. 
So one of the, the things. First town. So one of the things you talked about earlier was in your list making things that are you know this is how I heard it and you didn't say this but things that are implied more explicit. Yeah. And one of the things I did in Reanimatrix is you know there's a whole chapter devoted to a deep one brothel. Because, you know, deep ones don't have lungs. They don't have to breathe. There's some interesting things you can do there. Um, and I caught, I, I have caught hell for that chapter. But I really like it because it turns the whole, there's no sex in Lovecraft on its head. There's lots of sex in Lovecraft. The whole Shadow of Rinsmith is all about sex. Oh, yeah. How do you think hypertech? Right, it, you know, and you know, I. Ted Grau did a great story called, I think it's called Father's Day, yeah. about, you know, a deep one looking for dad, but uh, you know, his human father. So, but yeah, and the, the whole spawning issue, and you know, are are, do, are deep ones born like this, or are they born as fry? and then have to spend years in the ocean. That's a huge issue I'd love to deal with. And I've done some, a little bit about that. But there's lots of sex in Lovecraft. It's just all implied. It's not explicit. There's, there's, uh, Ephraim, uh, Asneth is called a dirty old, old man. Even though she's a woman, when she's at school, she's telling bad jokes and she's hitting on the girls. And they all know about it. And they're just like, yeah, she's kind of weird. But there's a reason, you know? And, you know, so we explore that. But yeah, taking the stuff that was implied and making it very explicit can earn you a lot of, a lot of, of work and it makes you get noticed. There are gonna be some people that hate it. Yeah. Um, and that please everyone. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, one thought I had, well, keep just going through her list, um, was... There's how, more on the list. I'm sure. Um, was how often do you, you're reading, you know, it's popular in comic books, it's, co it's popular in movies. All of a sudden, either across the top of the bottom, you see Meanwhile. So why not have what was happening on the other side of the story? I, it's just, it's a different perspective. It's the same timeline. But, you know, it's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. You, you have everything that's going on offstage of Hamlet. So why not try that with the mythos? You could. No rules. Right. Which is kind this. of what I tried to do with reanimators. Right. So, yeah. Um, but there's two, no is it Mr. and, there's Mr. Winter and Mrs. Winter? They're two novels by the same person. Um, they both tell the same story, but one from a male perspective, one from a female perspective. Um, and if you try to cross-reference the, them and you know see what's true and what isn't, they don't match up because people lie mostly to themselves. Yeah. I did my, my very first book, which was not uh, was a fantasy set in a turn of 11th century Japan, and it was told in three points of view, and it's a very very narrow story. Only those three characters really show up in it. Um, and it's their diaries, and they're constantly, it's the exact same events. And looking back at it now, there are things I would have done differently, but, but it's the same events, but each of them told through each of these points of view, and you can't always, you, sometimes you realize that there's a complaint, and it's all about the failure to communicate, the ways that we, mm -hmm. we fail to actually reach, the, bridge the gap between people. 
But it, but yeah, absolutely, it's very interesting when you start doing it. And this is why we saw so many stories for a while. Oh my God, Jane Austen ripoffs. And there's, I cannot tell you, and I out myself as somebody who has read enough of them to say I cannot tell you how many Jane Austen stories told from the point of view of Darcy I have read. And that's not even all of the other ones out there. Um, so, so this is something that's uh, always been of interest to us. This has been going on for a long time. Um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. When was that written? Seventies? Yeah. Something like yeah. that. I mean, again, people are constantly readdressing existing material. Um, and Lovecraft is unique and specific in that he is a person that we can point to and say he did this. Jane Austen is long dead. Um, that's, sorry, sorry, people, but she's dead. And, and uh, um, if you didn't check your feeds this morning to see her. Um, she, and she's still dead. Still dead. Uh, like Francisco Franco, she is still dead. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, we've always done this, and we've done this with individual works. Shakespeare, we've done it with Austin, we've done it with uh, Bronte, we've done it with, uh, I, I mean, Dickens even, for reasons. Um, but but yeah, so Lovecraft is. I mean, he has, he takes his place in the canon, his rightful place in the canon. Not necessarily because he's the best writer of his period or the best writer in weird fiction, but because he is the person that we all respond to, one way or another. Two or five degrees separated, we all respond. Uh, there's a period at the end. Of that. <laughs> This isn't actually a question, this is just a, a comment about <laughs> yes, something that someone said 15 minutes ago. <laughs> that someone mentioned that uh, here we are, uh, we've got some story where uh, the human race is going to be wiped out. We consider that to be a very evil thing. When, uh, from the perspective of the entity doing it, was well, not evil, it's just, you know, it's not personal, it's just business. And all I could think of was the very beginning to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. tell him that the highway department's going to come by and knock his house down so they can build an overpass. Posted? It was posted. Posted in the basement. <laughs> Behind a tiger. Behind a tiger. <laughs> and so the thing is, here's Arthur who thinks that this is a terrible thing that they've got to knock down his house and he doesn't even have time to move out. And they're telling him, well, you know, we're very sorry, but we've got to build the highway. And little do they know that the whole Vogon battle cruiser team is coming in because the earth is in the way of their highway project, and so the earth has to go. Yeah. So in, in, in retrospect, Arthur losing his house that day was probably the best thing that happened to it on that day. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It seemed like a terrible thing was about to happen. It's just the idea of taking something that is just everyday life and then just raising it to a level of absurdity or just taking it up another notch, like, yeah, they're going to knock down my house, but the Vogons are about to show up and knock down everybody's house. And then bring it right back to, that's the way the Vogons see it. It was posted, and we're sorry, but we're knocking your house down. Just one of those things that, another technique for taking something that is seemingly mundane, twist it, turn it, or blow it out a little bit bigger, and see if there's something there. And our next question, uh, I think there's only one out of 15 questions that you've been already answered. <laughs> I told you, they're a great, they're great panel, they're the perfect panel, and, uh, and they've covered everything. We're the perfect panel. They are the perfect panel, you heard it here. 
is there an element of the mythos or part of a mythos-related story that hasn't been tackled yet that you would like to see someone or yourself expand on, write about, develop? Is there something you're planning to dig into or something you'd like to see somebody else dig into? Yes, and I'm not going to tell you any of that. That's my career for the next 10 years. And it's a secret. No, but, but seriously, um, I used to talk at length about what I was working on, and then somebody stole my titles. Oh. And somebody who was in my Facebook feed. And nice. And I'm like, wait, I worked for weeks brainstorming that title. And now it's just, you know, out. I'm, and somebody used it already. So I'm not, I don't talk about what I'm gonna, what my themes are gonna be, what my titles are gonna be, what I'm doing anymore. Let, let um, me zero in just a little bit more. Um, just an element of a mythos story, just, just that thing that we all could read, <laughs> that we could find in public domain, that you might develop or some like to see someone else work. As a reader, I am having read Kitch's uh, novella most recently. It was so nice to go back to the dream world. Um, and I think it's a real shame that more people don't spend time there or develop it. I think it, I I love Lovecraft's Dunsany period. I love that sort of King's Jane Bible language that there's this, it's just this it flows in such a nice way, you kind of, your, your rock, it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's just so soothing to me. And I think there's something in it, because it's less defined, because it's not, uh, it's not the existential horror, it's this, I think it's nice, almost like psychological retreat to a, an alien comfort zone. I, I would love to see, like, a, people doing that, or if, if people have, if I'm describing some sort of fantasy author that y'all or someone like, thinks is doing something similar, I, I just, I, that's such a nice place to be. I would love to see people exploring it more. Yeah. And Brian Lumley did those, his Dream World novels. Yep. Brian Lumley? Or I think there's four? Brian. Oh, that's right, okay. Brian Lumley? Lumley. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that doesn't mean that it's, but um, yeah. <laughs> there is another anthology that is currently in the works that I. I'm trying to get myself inside too. Um, where they're actually, their question is, how has the dreamlands evolved? Because all of what we've seen is kind of a, like almost like a world of the past, a primitive version. So what has changed now that we're a 21st century, you know, somewhat more enlightened <laughs> um, race? Uh, so, you know, what might have changed about that? So, you know, I'm looking forward to you know, reading that, whether or not I'm in it. When I was writing Velik, though, I, I um, hypothesized that the jungles of Plaid, um, which when Lovecraft talks about them, they're full of mysterious black people. You know, and, and, but he doesn't talk much about them except that they're full of mysterious black people. And my notion was that they were actually somewhat technologically advanced. Um, from the rest of that. The dreamlands point to the past because dreams point to memory. So, um, so they point to, in the 21st century, they point to the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, not to 2017. But, but that 
because they're their own place, they're, they're de developing their own cultures and stuff. And while I was writing it, I thought, I'd talk about some uh, traders from Plaid, four men wearing uh, bright jackets, and I'd talk about um, Velet watching the coastline go by and seeing cities that are lit by gaslight or by electricity, the only places, the very few places I was hypothesizing. And I thought, I would love to go there. I'd love to go to Plaid, the Plaid that is, you know, uh, a it was a construct that has developed its own life, that they have their own culture, their own world, they are not, they're not our world at all. And I, I think it would be so interesting to just go there and live with those people for a while. And I don't know what the story, and what happens when one of these white dreamers, these white male dreamers comes through, how do you deal with these, these train wrecks coming into your, your community? <laughs> So I have I've I've touched on the myth uh, on the dreamlands in like three maybe four stories, um, and I have uh, I've taken the opinion that the dreamlands are Earth's dreamlands. Yeah. But they're not ours. That the dreamlands are essentially the cyberspace, the alt reality, the the that exists for the elder things that are sleeping at the bottom of the world to play it, this is where they play it being gods. The, the ancient ones that sit, you know, the, 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 the gods of earth that pass judgment on Randolph Carter. The little Carter, gods of earth. The little yeah. gods of earth. Those are what the elder things dream of being in this world. So we are their, or the and, dreamlands are their card game. Yes. And that, that some human beings have invaded that, that cyberspace, that's immaterial to them. This is their playground. We just happen to have walked into it. We're a little bit verminous, but hey, we're fun to play with. <laughs> but yeah, that's where I've, I've, I've gone with that. So it's a little different than what everybody else is doing, but everybody else has assumed that they're human dreamlands, and I don't buy that. So, and that's, that would explain why the gods are in it. That's fantastic. Yes, yeah. right? And on that high note, what I'd like to do is open up the floor for some questions. Uh, once you've asked your question, I'm going to restate it so everyone can hear it, and then we'll go ahead and answer it. So do we have any questions? Please. Uh, I'm wondering if any of you have read uh, Val Black Tom by yeah. Victor Lavelle. Yeah. And the question is, has anyone read Val and Black Tom by Victor Lavelle? And do you think that we might start to see a trend of more writers been going on for the last 18 months, <laughs> actually. There's a lot of people exploring it right now. Um, one of the things that, because I've talked to Victor Lavelle um, a few times um, on, online, so I haven't met him, <laughs> um, but, but one of the things that I'm noticing is that a lot of times people are not engaging explicitly facing the works, they are launching from the works. Um, like Ballad of Black Tom, which has to do with Incident of Red Hook, is it? Yeah. 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 Um, it's, uh, uh, it's, it sort of launches from that, and we see the shape of Lovecraft in the background, but it's not, it's not him saying, you know, let's, let's talk about, um, like in the Dreamlands, let's talk about specifically, you know, the jungle, or talk about those, the humped aliens that are, or the humped monsters that are so clearly supposed to be mapping onto Turks. Um, in fact, it uses Turkish at least once. 
but um, I think it's fantastic. I think that we will move past Lovecraft into other topics at some point, but I think that the fact that we must engage with Lovecraft on our way to other topics is, is really interesting. So um, Tom and I are both in a book called Heroes from Red Hook, which specifically was targeted to write stories from minority viewpoints and female viewpoints and gender, different gender viewpoints. Um, uh, I believe the idea was to write stories from the perspective of protagonists that Lovecraft would have um, dismerged, belittled, walked away from, hated, and we said, sweet, yeah. that's plenty. We got lots to work with. That's um, everybody. So, yeah. you know, we, we have uh, a lot to draw from, and that was from Golden Goblin Press. I don't believe they're here. No. Um, Oscar. But, yeah, Oscar's not here, but, uh, but you can absolutely find that book online. Uh, Golden Goblin Press, and that, that's a big, beefy anthology with a lot of stuff, and um, that absolutely deals with that. And, and they actually, we had all reached out to Victor Laval to, um, you know, to, to kind of say something about it, but we kept missing it. So it was kind of one of those things. And you know, I have a story in that called the Guilt of Nikki Cotton, which is the the the, the mythos element is incidental to what was really going on there. Is that in the 1920s there was a there was a huge flood in the Mississippi Valley, and that results in the Amer African American diaspora across the United States. It moves huge numbers of people across this country, and up into Red Hook and New York and Boston, and it changes the demographics of this country almost within a year. Um, and that has huge implications for everybody. Uh, and there were, there were actually refugee camps all up and down the East Coast for these people. Um, and just, uh, it, it really strained relations from a lot of different viewpoints. And I think it's important to talk about that. We, I, when I started doing the researches, I had no idea about that. Because we don't teach it. But it's important to understand what happened. And I, that, to me, is, is part of what we're doing. And moving, using the mythos as a, a tool to actually go back and examine some of the things that drove some of the concepts we now have in this country. And the other thing, just a, a, as a point about that, is that all of these stories were from Lovecraft's time. So they're, they're mythos stories from the 20s and 30s, um, just with modern authors and minority and you know, other LGBTQ, so, interesting. I understand briefly, I had, uh, so the Ballad of Icon was published by Port Icon Publishing. It also published Kids in Bella, and they really done a wonderful job publishing uh, books that I think hit exactly at what you're, what you're interested in. Um, then the Tor.com website also has a really great Lovecraft reread series in which they do a one fascinating conversation uh, between uh, the two uh, uh, the two uh, hosts or writers, uh, but they frequently kind of uh, point to other material that kind of riffs on or builds on. One of the rare instances in the comment section is actually 100% good. And there's a great discussion going on. Uh, I can't read comments anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Please. I think one of the dangers of pastiche is that authors often will have a certain characteristics of a character that will jump out at them, and they 
more inclined to loyal stories, the sense of justice and compassion for victims, his ability to relate to lower classes and permit their ease. My question for any of you is, in Lovecraft pastiches, what tends, what do people tend to overemphasize, and more important, what do they lose? This is wonderful about those stories. Tentacles, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing. So the, the description of this panel talks a lot about Cthulhu and the normalization of Cthulhu. And for me, what's always fascinating, like what I find fascinating, is in that story, everyone who talks about Cthulhu, everyone who's freaked out by the word Cthulhu, never sees him. It's all this text. And it's uh, Johnson, Johan Johnson, whatever the... the, the, the Johansson. Johansson. That was it. Um, Johansson's the only person who sees the creature doesn't have the language for it. And if he's like, but everyone else is like, sees the, the word on the, on the envelope or whatever. And it's, the horror is so, the horror that we the reader experience in like the, the first two layers of the narrator, uh, the, the story that the, the narrator experiences this horror, this like kind of uh, proximity horror. It's a, I mean, this is a cosmic horror story. Right? It's like, there is something that is, so mind-boggling that I like just looking at these letters and the impossible way to pronounce them is like that's enough to like shatter my view. And so uh, again, as someone who does not write but someone who reads this stuff, it is so like it's not the tentacles. The tentacles are not what's scary. It's it's those letters. It's what those letters convey. It's that. You know, we all say Cthulhu, but we all, again, know that we're saying it wrong, that it's supposed to be this guttural, dehumanizing experience to even speak it. Like, yeah, tentacles. No more tentacles. <laughs> there was a great, and I can't remember the comic, and maybe someone else can, but there was um, a comic that deals with the graphic novel where uh, Nyarlathotep is in place and he's talking to someone who is very quickly losing their grip on, on their mind and reality at the same time as they stand there and their eyes get wider and wider and their pupils get smaller and smaller. Um, so Nyarlathotep is, you know, an approximation for, for your pathetic mind and mouth. My real name is, and the, the word bubble is black. So there's nothing you can't. And then, and the response is the person just drops to the floor and has this expression, and and that, I think, is is you know the, the dark epiphany that that's the stuff that I, I think is, is really exciting and fun. In a lot of these stories, it's not always about that, but that stuff that I think we could all dwell on and play with, as opposed to tentacles and monsters. Oh, I feel like oh. style, the style is one of the issues um, that's done poorly often. Um, because, uh, and he's, he is not, when he gets into his really passive descriptions, they, what he does is tells you he's about to give you a description that's going to appall you. And then he tells you again that he's going to appall you with his description. And then he gives you a description while he tells you that, yes, this is appalling. And um, one of the issues is that most of us, if we try to do that, um, we're too self-aware, and it ends up reading. It ends up feeling ironic. And also, his vocabulary is impressive. It's not absolute. He, he, there are times when he will 
you know, there's a better word out there, but that happens like once a book, which is not the way it is for most of us. And most people who try to write like Lovecraft, they're looking for that elevated voice, and actually they're trying to write like Clark Ashton Smith, usually. Um, and, uh, um, And that requires incredible discipline, incredible grammatical discipline, and an incredible vocabulary. And if you don't have those two things, you can't fake them, which means you have to train yourself to write like that. And it's hard work. And that that bothers me when people write sort of um, bad imitations of the voice of Lovecraft. I'd so much rather read somebody write something in a, a pure prose um, and then hit, hit all their marks with a, a simpler, stronger style. Just real quickly to answer your question, there are too many books and there are too many monsters. If, if Earth is so so insignificant. Why is everybody Why here? <laughs> Pizza. I've seen it done. They've not been good. <laughs> this, this is the problem because I think we're actually, in, I was talking about this the other day on the podcast, is that I think what we're actually in is this sort of like post-mythos world mm. where we are all aware. So when I grew up in the 70s, it, you, know, you would hunt for mythos fiction. Mm-hmm. Now it's served to me, there's freaking Ghostbusters episodes about mythos, right? The, the grim adventures of, of, of Bill and Mandy or whatever, you know, yeah. They're, they're, it's coming at my kids know who Cthulhu is. Not because I told them, but because they saw it on TV, okay? Which is fine, but you know, but we live in a, a post-mythos world. Not a post-Lovecraft world, a post-mythos world where it's all freely available. It's sort of like the theme of my fiction. You know, I try to move all that stuff together and say, okay, what does this distill into? But there are people who ignore it. And I don't think it works. I don't think you can do it anymore without referencing something that other people have done. Uh, That's just my opinion. I could be wrong, but... Do we have another question? Please. Um, He mentioned what we wrote with the word Ireland. And it seems to me one of the things that had some of the more interesting stuff was That's fairly easy because Lovecraft, even his best, was often close to the point of terrifying things that serve. I am probably a minority of these here. I don't find this thing scary at all. I think I'm enduring. Aww. <laughs> like, I, I always wanted a son and I could have named him. So, what I'd be interested in in the absence of one approach to um, working with the mythos is to 
Well, that's the heart of postmodernism, isn't it? I mean, and this is actually both of these questions. Um, can uh, all fiction is metafictional? I, I teach at universities, and I, I mean, I hate to say that because that's like a that's what you say at dinner parties with English majors. But it's also kind of it's also kind of true. I mean, um, and and we're using irony sort of clinically at this point, not just like. Uh, the way we use it popularly to mean smart assy. Um, so, but I, but I mean, I think it's at this point. I, I think it's almost impossible to write something without ironic intent. Um, although you may choose to conceal it, you may choose to subvert it in some way and make it as transparent as possible. There's a Boom Studios did a comic book called Cthulhu, and it was an anthology comic book. And there's one set of panels that I really love. It's about this little goth girl who is going through life, and every place she turns, she is beaten down by her parents, by her teachers, by the people on the bus. She's spit on, she's hated, she's this, that, and the other thing. And then at the end of the day, Cthulhu walks out of the ocean, and she runs up to him and grabs him and says, thank you. This is her refuge, and you know, and there's that's like the only text in the entire is just the words "thank you," and it's so powerful because it is that that sort of meta meta contextual irony of I would rather live in a world where you exist than the one I currently live in. That's that's scary on a whole different level. It's funny, just an aside, that I wrote this one military science fiction novel where you get to the point where now the big war is about to happen. It's going to be World War III in space. And the word is being brought to the captain of the ship who hates his job, hates his life, and he's literally dying out there in the peace. He's turned into a drunk. And his exo, his first officer, walks in and she says, I'm very sorry to have to tell you this, sir, but I believe that we are at war. And he looks up and he just says, Oh, thank God. <laughs> just goes to show you the perspective. So, <laughs> you have another question? Do you see um, kind of uh, uh, sometimes people maybe who are uh, influenced by influence of uh, Longraft or being part of that peripheral Longraft being seen as Longraft? So, like the example I'm thinking of was when two detectives seen that one was popular. A lot of people knew me as a big Cthulhu uh, Lovecraft fan. I said, oh, this love, this pink and yellow, it's a Lovecraft thing, right? But tell us all about it. It's kind of Lovecraft. <laughs> uh, but I just thought it was kind of funny that, like, like we were saying in the, you know, before my, you know, back in the day, it's hard to find it. Now people are thinking, assuming things that are kind of Lovecraft, are, are even though they're kind of like two or three steps past So Jeff Vandermeer, you know, the Annihilation trilogy, the, 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 all his books, I even saw it like the other day. Somebody says, oh yeah, if you want to read a really good Lovecraftian novel, read The Annihilation. Jeff will rip you to shreds. <laughs> he is not a Lovecraft fan. The books are not, they are, they are in the weird, weird tradition, but they are not influenced by Lovecraft. And, but it's the, it's the touchstone that everyone knows, so they go to it. Um, we, have a, we have on the e-zine debated many times what is the difference between weird fiction, cosmic fiction, cosmic horror, and Lovecraftian? How do you, we, we don't have language enough from an academic sense to, 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 to uh, drive those divisions. So Lovecraft is a touchstone for everything from beers and chambers and Lovecraft and Derelith 
because it's an academic pursuit for most people. But for us, it's really important. But everybody else is like, yes. Oh, it's like that football thing. No, no, yeah. no. <laughs> and, and don't let, you know, Joe Pulver ever hear you say that, you know, the king in yellow, Carcosa is less crafty. He'll probably do that. Uh, <laughs> All right, then. I believe we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for coming along. Please give a good round of This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com. Time is money. Well, not 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 at the moment. I that cartoon where Einstein is at the chalkboard and it finally ends up equals money, equals uh, dollars. Yeah. He proves time is money. Yeah. Man, opium is nice money. Room. Opium is money. Yep. Did you just say opium is opium money? Is money. Opium is money. Opium is money. Many things are money. Money is money. Money is money. Twenty dollar bills, that's money. Twenty dollar bills is money. May not be real money, but you and I have the same that's sad. Yeah. <laughs> that's sad that I knew exactly. Money is money. Opium. Of all the things to bring up, I was like, opium. Well it's a it's a very common part I mean I don't I don't normally just make opium. Okay. It is a very obscure quote from a very bad Tom Hanks movie. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, money is oh. money. Because money is power. Power is drugs. And drugs are money. And he goes, I thought you said power is money. And he goes, money is money. <laughs> uh, what was it called? Uh, volunteers. Volunteers. Oh. Tom Hanks John and John Candy. Candy. Oh, John it, it had some very good moments. Who else is supposed to be here? Tom Lynch. Tom Lynch. Wait, Tom Lynch is not qualified for this. Who is? I agree. Nice to do video, Neil. I'll be your moderator. I'll be your moderator. I'll be your moderated. We will be your moderate, your moderate hands. So anyway, once I start up, I'm going to have you introduce yourself. So I think that goes better. So talk about whatever you want. You get two, three minutes. You're going to be here for an hour and 15 minutes, so speak as much as you like. Questions, we start firing the questions out at you. It's, I think it's better if you go back and forth among yourselves. Right. Do we have to arm wrestle or anything? Cause yeah, no. Thumb wars. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, with a with hand like that, I'm not, no. I have long thumbs, but not long. I have curiously small thumbs. All right. I think I'm going to get started. I think it's showtime. Alrighty then. Awesome. Alrighty. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> <laughs>